0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at Russia's global role. Russian military intervention has changed the course of the war in Syria, Meanwhile, the conflict in Ukraine seems to have reached some sort of stalemate. Viewed from the West, Vladimir Putin's Russia looks agile and successful in the conduct of its foreign policy. But how do things look from Moscow? Joining me in the studio is Neil Buckley, our East Europe editor, and Sam Jones, our Defence and Security editor. Neil, first, what about that question? I mean, do you think the Russians feel confident and like they're on a roll at the moment?
2: I think there's probably some quiet satisfaction in Moscow that the Kremlin's aims in Ukraine and in Syria have, to a reasonable extent, been achieved. I mean, in Ukraine, they secured Crimea. There seems to be no realistic possibility that uh, they will ever have to hand Crimea back or are ever going to be prepared to hand Crimea back. They didn't take territory in eastern Ukraine, but it remains as a lever that Russia can use to complicate the Ukrainian government's life and complicate Ukraine's efforts to integrate into Western institutions. In Syria, I think also they've achieved their goals of strengthening Bashar al-Assad and essentially forcing the West, if you like, to choose between Assad or ISIS. Essentially reduce the fight to those two players and say it's it's one or the other. So I think there's some satisfaction. Clearly though, it's exerted a big toll in terms of the economic pressures that Russia is now facing.
1: And talking about their goals, they've obviously got the specific, quite big tactical goals that you describe in Ukraine and Syria, but do you think there's also a broader almost psychological goal to say, look, Russia's back You can't ignore us. You can't marginalise us. We are a great power and we're still capable of shaping events.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, with Ukraine, part of what they were doing was aiming to say to the world, you cannot ignore us, you cannot do these things in our backyard without any kind of response, as you did for a long time. Now we're back and we will respond. The Western response to that was to try and isolate Russia. But through what Russia has done in Syria, it's somewhat broken out of that isolation and proved, if you like, that you cannot resolve big questions, even well outside our borders, without Russia these days. And uh, Mr. Putin, when he presented the cessation of hostilities on television this week, very much emphasised that this was a joint US-Russia initiative, a result of diplomacy between these two great powers, if you like. So he feels very much that he's brought Russia back to the top table.
1: And Sam, I mean, in Syria, the intervention has been going on a few months now. How far do you think Russia is towards achieving its goals?
0: I mean, that depends on what you assume Russia's goals were in the first place. What was very clear was that in the summer of last year, late summer of last year, Assad was looking very shaky. The regime was perhaps weeks from crumbling. That was certainly the assessment in the West. It was definitely the way it was seen in Moscow. And with that, they were facing the loss of one of their key strategic assets, their last kind of foothold in the Middle East and their last kind of deep water port beyond their own borders. So if you assume their goal was to stop that from happening, then they've achieved it very well. You know, the situation in Syria has been completely reversed. Now Assad has never been more militarily secure. But if you look further into the future, has Russia's intervention swung the balance of the Syrian civil war to a place where it looks like it's on a trajectory to being solved? No. Are we going to defeat ISIS with this military campaign from Russia? No. So in terms of the partition of Syria, or it's likely kind of the hiving off of an Assad, a sort of Alawite Assad state with Russia as its protector is more likely than ever before. Is that what Russia wants? I'm not sure it is, because Russia hasn't really got the resources to commit to a long term military fight in Syria. It does need an exit plan. It doesn't look like it's got one at the moment. So those goals are more open ended. And uh, and I think, you know, that's why we're suddenly seeing a bit more diplomatic movement.
1: And meanwhile, Russia has been accused in the West, particularly by NGOs of using incredibly brutal tactics. Actually, some have said they're deliberately targeting hospitals. They've certainly killed a lot of civilians in the bombing around Aleppo. And there are now even larger flows of refugees coming out of Syria. Some in the West think that that might actually be a goal of Russian policy, to put the pressure on the EU by driving refugees out of Syria. What do you think of that?
0: I mean, that's been a sort of refrain I've heard a few times now from some very senior Western politicians, very senior diplomats. They do believe that Russia is genuinely stoking the humanitarian crisis in northern Syria, to put pressure both on Turkey and Europe. So there's an extent to which, just as in Ukraine, Russia is using its position there, its military operations there, as a lever to achieve a broader range of strategic effects that go beyond the narrow focus of the conflict. You know, undoubtedly, since Russia has begun indiscriminate bombing, and we we know the bombing is indiscriminate because the Russian Ministry of Defence very kindly posts pictures of the dumb, unguided smart bombs it's using, the indiscriminate bombing in somewhere like Aleppo really has greatly increased the flow of refugees to Turkey. That is something that the Russians could have had a handle on. They didn't have to go in bombing the city. You know, they didn't have to create the siege of the city in cohorts with the Alawite regime to create the siege of the city. So these do look like things that Russia is deliberately doing. And there is an interest there for Russia in terms of their relationship with Turkey, which is at an all-time low. So it's increasing the pressure on Turkey. And also in terms of Europe, you know, it's something you frequently hear from Russian politicians in the media in the past few weeks in Russia and abroad about the the disaster that is European migration and the Schengen borders control zone and all of that. So it plays into a Russian narrative about the sort of collapse of the West at the moment as well. And it's kind of problems that follow on from the financial crisis.
1: And Neil, I mean, Sam refers there to these tensions with Turkey, and that seems to be the warrior of the week, if I can put it, maybe it'll be rather longer lasting than that, that there's suddenly been, well, not suddenly, but over a few months, a really serious deterioration in Russian-Turkish relations. I think the European foreign policy chief Who's was even talking today about the possibility of a war between Russia and Turkey. I mean, how bad is it?
2: Well, it's difficult to ascertain what Russia's real aims are towards Turkey, but the rhetoric has been extremely tough since the Russian fighter was downed. Um, by, November, by Turkish it? planes. Yeah, Putin has repeatedly said that Turkey will have reason to regret this, that it will pay a price for this. A couple of weeks ago when Russia staged its latest big snap military exercises in the Southern Military District, that made people in Ukraine very nervous again. But it also, uh, given that you know this is the region that's close to Turkey, caused some Russian analysts to suggest that Putin might actually be mobilising in preparation for a possible war with Turkey, or at least aiming to send a very strong message to Turkey. We just don't know how far Mr. Putin is prepared to go, and if he would really seek to get involved in a clash with a NATO member, which could have potentially extremely serious consequences.
1: Sure. I mean, if he were to attack a NATO member, that triggers Article 5 and the thing we avoided throughout the Cold War, war between NATO and Russia, becomes probable at that point, doesn't Absolutely.
2: it? Absolutely. But, I mean, suggestions that Turkey might be prepared to put troops into Syria because of the Kurdish situation would then create a very serious risk of some sort of clash with Russia. And I guess
1: technically or legally, Sam if the Russians shoot Turks in Syria, that's different from attacking them on Turkish soil in terms of triggering NATO commitments. Is that right?
0: It is, but we're in a bit of a grey area. So I mean, what would happen is that Turkey would appeal to the North Atlantic Council and ask for this to be declared an Article 5 issue. And then from that, you would get the whole sort of NATO response. NATO are very, very, very worried about this. And they are, Washington in particular, is really trying to restrain Turkey and stop it from deploying troops into Syria, because this does have the potential to escalate quite dramatically. We have already had a Russian plane shot down. Erdogan is viewed as a bit of a loose cannon, and Putin is too. And the relationship between the two is personally full of dislike, so that on both sides there is a sense that we could blunder into a situation that karma heads aren't sort of having any influence over.
1: I guess that does relate there to something Neil and I were talking about, which is the extent to which Russia, even in a rather dangerous way, is sort of making the weather in the Middle East. And you say the Americans are sort of watching from the sidelines, worried about what everybody's going to do, but no longer really controlling the situation anymore. So has, do you think Russia achieved another kind of subsidiary goal, which is to make it clear that the Middle East isn't just an American playground and that Russia actually is capable of changing things on the ground in ways the Americans can't at the moment really alter?
0: Well, there's a sort of
1: dual narrative
0: here in Russia. You know, on the one hand, they've long said that under Bush and for the past 10, 15 years of US foreign policy, there has been this kind of regime change-oriented way in which Washington sculpts the world, particularly in the Middle East, to its own ends. And Russia has always been staunchly opposed to that. And Russia continues to say those kind of things. And yet, obviously, Russia is now doing just that in Ukraine. In Syria, I think they say, well, you know, we're here at the invitation of the legitimate government and we're helping them fight terrorists. Whether this will spell a kind of broader reconfiguration of alliances and and dependencies within the Middle East, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, at the end of the day, Turkey, for example, is still very dependent on the US. The Saudis, very dependent on the US. You know, Iran and Russia don't have the easiest of relationships. They don't have the easiest of relationships in Syria, actually, because the two of them are battling for control over who's going to be the sort of chief protector of the regime there. So Russia can't really broaden this out into a sort of, you know, a new pact. Moscow for themselves in the Middle East that they will then step into the shoes of the US over. I don't think that's going to happen Uh, and as I say they need an exit strategy for this because just from a a sort of pure resource point of view they cannot afford to get more embroiled into more conflicts in the Middle East.
1: Although I mean they have managed to keep this as an air conflict so that to some extent does limit their they're not getting people killed on the ground and it must also limit the expense a bit. I mean, a bit, but there's still high-tempo operations.
0: There's still a lot of planes there. There's a lot of ships that have been deployed. And Russia's military, though large, the only a portion of it is the kind of high-readiness, modernised, brand-new equipment kind of stuff. So, you know, they've already been using some of that in eastern Ukraine. Now they're deploying a lot of their assets uh, around Syria. And the reality is that economically they can't afford to sustain this for too long now.
1: Yeah, well, that's a really crucial point and perhaps an obvious one on which to end, Neil. I mean... I started by saying that Russia has created this image of decisiveness and doing well, but the economic weakness must have only got worse with the collapsing oil price and sanctions. I mean, might we be back here in a year's time saying, well, actually, Russia couldn't sustain this and it's already gone horribly wrong? Or has Putin found some way of being able to project power even against a very weak economic background?
2: Well, I think Sam is right that the war in Syria hasn't cost Russia too much in financial terms, so it could probably continue with this for some time from a financial and economic standpoint. But the economic background in Russia is very serious right now. That's primarily because of the low oil price. But we've also got Western sanctions, which act as a kind of accelerant in this kind of chemical reaction, uh, mean that the overall impact on the Russian economy is much more severe. Now, people say that there is in essence a kind of a conflict going on in the minds of ordinary russians between the tv and the refrigerator between the tv that is spitting out propaganda saying that russia is under threat from the west and is rebuilding itself as a great power and their fridge where they're seeing fewer and fewer things inside because russian spending power has been hit so badly by the collapse of the ruble by inflation and so on now at the moment the TV propaganda seems to be kind of winning out. and um, We know from the past that Russians have a tremendous capacity to rally round when they feel the country is under threat and suffer great hardship if their leaders tell them that this is necessary. And that seems to be something Mr. Putin is carrying off at the moment. But He does face elections to the Duma, the lower house of the Russian parliament in the latter part of this year. The Kremlin has lots of tools it can use to influence those elections. But don't forget that in uh, 2011, the last time there were Duma elections, there were protests following those elections over the way that they were seen to have been manipulated. And that's something that's still very, very fresh in uh, the Kremlin's mind.
1: Okay, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks very much to Neil Buckley and also to Sam Jones here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until. Next week, goodbye.